He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, January 8, 2022. Did you know this weekend the late Allen Berg would have been 88 years old? I'm not the only one who talks about him as they broadcast. Peter Boyles has made a career talking about Allen Berg, his alleged friendship with the man, the man who got murdered while he was competing against Peter Boyles. I've heard stories of professional jealousies, but I wasn't there. David Savage was. David Savage, a brilliant Colorado attorney. He's written a book about his client, Ross Carlson, just in the nick of time. In the nick of time is a fabulous book. Go to Amazon, buy it. We're going to talk about Ross Carlson. But David Savage was a good friend of the late Alan Burke. In fact, he was a lawyer for Allenberg. He knew Peter Boyles well and the late great, not the late great, what am I saying? He knew Walter Garash, who's still alive and doing okay. Walter Garash, a Denver legend. David Savage considered him a mentor. So we're going to be talking about the Ross Carlson case, sad double homicide murder, an incredible set of facts and things to contemplate as we consider trauma. When I think about trauma, I think about January 6th because that traumatized me to watch that happen to our country. Before we get to David Savitz and my further efforts to flesh out the life of Allen Berg and figure out certain truths around that story, instead just instead of just hearing, oh, he did this on the radio, that I'd like to hear about the man. Has anybody talked about his birthday in January before? From the people who knew him, really loved him, knew him way back when, knew how he chilled out, David Savitz. He's one of the Colorado friends. David Savitz joins me in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, but first, our troubadour, Dave Gunders, and I watched Don't Look Up. It was tremendous. It's got Denver connections, but... I just am so impressed by his music library. Looking Down is a classic Dave Gunders song from one of his earliest albums. You can find it all on Dave Gunders' music on YouTube. And Looking Down fits this show, and my buddy Dave and I start talking about what's going on around January 6th and the actions of the Republican Party caving in to white nationalists that really have me and a lot of other people worried. The same kind of people who killed Allen Berg, stormed the Capitol, chanted on that park, that Robert E. Lee Park in Charlottesville, August 2017, turning point for me, Donald Trump still perpetuating the big lie The big lie of January 6th has grown only bigger. And it's got the whole Republican Party in its grasp. And people are talking about violence. It's a dangerous time 
Let's get some optimism first from our troubadour, Dave Gunders, as we have a good discussion about current events. Thank you, President Biden, for coming to visit Boulder. Feel bad for those people. Looks like some radical elements may have caused that fire. We shall see. And before we go, I just want to say about Jared Polis, I ripped him in my Colorado Sun column for giving a break to that truck driver. I'd have liked to see the judicial system do its job. I'm partial to that because I'm part of the judicial system, and it seemed imperious And Kim Kardashian running our criminal justice system? I don't think so. Her dad got involved in the OJ case. How did that work out? Not that great if you're on the side of victims, and I am. So I just want to say that while Jared Polis is subject to criticism and some Democratic policies that lead to possible increases in crime is fair game, don't talk about crime unless you're willing to talk about Donald Trump and the violence he encouraged 140 officers injured on January 6th, 2020. Don't give me that false flag, deep state bullshit, disinformation. I need to calm down. Let's hear from Dave Gunders, our troubadour. But before we do that, I just want to give one more reason why I'm a little upset. Chuck Schumer is a lot calmer than me. He's a Jewish guy slightly older than me, and he spoke about January 6th from his perspective. Listen to the Senate Majority Leader. Then we'll take a short break. Then you'll hear from our troubadour after that, David Savitz. And then... After that epic episode in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, please listen to the full Schumer soundbite because it's good. Right now, give a listen to Chuck Schumer, followed by the Troubadour, followed by David Savage. Skip around whatever suits you. Thanks for listening. I'm on the floor of the Senate at 1 p.m. Count the ballots. My first time as putative majority leader, haven't even given a speech about an hour later, police officer in a bulletproof vest with submachine gun strapped across his waist grabs me by the collar like this. I'll never forget it. Senator, you're in danger. We've got to get out of here. I was within 20 feet of these insurrection, I'm not allowed to curse, but sons of guns, okay? Um, had one of them had a gun, had two of them blocked off the door. Who knows what happened? One of them was reputed to see me and say, there's the big Jew, let's get him. You know, bigotry against one is bigotry against all. Hey, maybe you know my voice and me from the first half of my career when I was a Denver prosecutor. Or maybe you know me from my time on the radio and now on my podcast. But my real job for several decades now has been to fight in the civil arena for victims of crimes. I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. If your life has been damaged through the misconduct of others, there's a great new Colorado law, and it's for you. It allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960, to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Let's expose the truth. Let's get you some justice. Let me be your voice for a confidential consultation. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 
It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Troubadour Dave Gunders. I don't know about this week. First of all, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, Craig. I'm having a little difficulty because of the language you used when I summoned you over here to record. I mean, my God, it's Friday night already. What what language are you referring to? I said well, you were not a patient man. No. You said, am I at your beck and call? <laughs> okay, I said What that does that too. mean, beck and call? Uh, you know, that's, an, that's another one of those interesting questions that you always bring up. You're the guy who used the expression. I don't think it was nice. Yeah. Like, What is the Beck part of it? I know Byron Beck, number 40. His jersey is hanging at the old Pepsi Center, whatever they call it now, Ball Arena. But he played for DU, played well, for the Denver Rockets, a little for the Nuggets, had a hook shot, good attitude, Denver star. Right. And we know Beck the rock star. No, I don't. Okay. Well, he's great. I learned some stuff about you with this song this week. Um, okay, let's hear. Well, your song, Looking Down, and we are going to do a movie review, if you have the time, because I know you're not at my beck and call. But if you have the time to talk about Don't Look Up, it just so happened that you, our incredible troubadour, had the perfect song, and it's called Looking Down. And it taught me the following about you. Are you ready? Okay. That you used very hard drugs, hallucinogenics, psychedelics, something like that, right? For this song, am I on to something? Well, I don't I don't see why why that would be the case. Okay, you don't have to say anything. I'm your lawyer too. Go. Okay, but uh I also learned cuz I don't think you've ever been asleep in my presence, have you? No, and let's keep it that way. Right. But I know how you sleep. <laughs> I sleep very well. <laughs> now I know the position in which you sleep. Okay. Face uh, down. <laughs> no, I never now sleep face ball. down. Well, what about your song? You're not an honest author. Well, was I talking about sleeping? You said, don't wake me. I'm looking down. No, I, well. Okay. So yeah, I'm a master of circumstantial evidence. Don't wake me. I'm looking down. What else could that mean? Well, don't wake him from the dream in which he's looking down. He's flying. Oh, he's, that's the psychedelics. This is a dream song. Let's just call it rich imagery. You wrote it a long time ago. I know that because you start off by saying you're in the middle of your life, and I don't want to break it to you. 
I said a bit beyond. I was I, on, I was honest. This was 2008. Just yeah, that Bessel. Uh, yeah, I'm. You know, it's it's. How uh, long ago did you write this? Well, 2008, I'd say, would probably be when I when I wrote it. So okay, 13, 14 years ago. All right. Well, and life expectancy is going down all of a sudden. Okay, that's encouraging. <laughs> Just like this movie that we are going to talk about, and then we'll get back to your song because I love your song. You know. I'll just say it. It's like Don McLean, or is it McLean? Right. American Pie. It's a, This is your magnum opus. Oh, you think so? Well, I don't know if that if that would be the case. And I wouldn't compare it to uh, Don McLean, who wrote uh, Bye Bye, Bye, Bye Amer- American, American Pie, Pie right? which had such such great. It's a great. It's a great song. Great imagery on that one. Yeah, but this yeah. song goes on for quite a while, and yeah. it's got some funky things I never heard out of you before. Right. Are those synthesizers? Oh, um, yeah. You know, I think I I was messing around with synthesizers, keyboards. Mm-hmm. Somebody was Somebody playing was a hell of there. a drum set. Right. We were playing. We were we were hitting the drums pretty hard on that one. And you were trying to hit notes that were really extraordinary. Trying. Right. Don't don't think I didn't notice that. <laughs> well, everybody's going to give a lesson, but before they do. There's big movie, and there's a bit of a Denver connection. Adam McKay, one of the writers and the director, and he's hot as hell, was born in Denver, but he grew up kind of East Coast-ish. But David Sirota, who I know from Radio Days, he is the co-writer, and he does live in Denver. His wife's uh, state rep, so it's kind of cool. I love the movie. How about you? The movie Don't Look Up. The hottest thing on Netflix. I like the movie. I I I, I guess I'm. Uh, I I don't know if I loved it, but um, it was a good movie, and I think it 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 made its point. Here's how you know at your advanced stage. I'll tell you how you know if you like it, because I'm right behind you. I stayed up for the whole movie, did not fall asleep. <laughs> what about you? I I think uh, it might have been a two night movie. Oh, for me. <laughs> see, you're you're a bit older, but you watched it with. Your child, I did, and that's a rarity. Sam and I loved it. He's home. And when I say salmon, like the fish, yeah, that's my son, Samuel Nathan, the salmon Silverman. Go ahead. Sam and so he probably doesn't like when you say salmon. Salmon's good for you. <laughs> it is. Right. But he, we loved it, and uh, why aren't we paying attention to climate change? Yes. I mean, the, the movie, like I said, the movie made its point, and, and it was uh, – I, I liked it for, uh, you know, I, I thought it followed in the footsteps of, of movies um, like... Um, like uh, I know what you're thinking uh, of. Doctor no, Strange. Doctor Strange Love. I was thinking, I was going to say Stranger in a Strange Love. Thank you. Doctor Strange Love. Right. It was, it was, it was tongue in cheek. It used satire in a biting way. Yeah. And it was... Yes. And it, Great and acting. It, yes. Leo. Oh, oh, yeah. He, he did, he did, he did great. Yeah. Meryl Streep. Always. A great actress, mm-hmm. Jennifer Lawrence. I like Jennifer Jennifer yeah, so Lawrence did that as well. Young guy. She was she was kind of she was she was re- restrained in this, and What's I thought it was that? pretty good. The guy she fell for, Timothy, Charlemagne, or is Sam said he's the next Leo. Right, he's a happening young actor. I don't know anything right. about him. He was good. Yeah, I loved and just since we're just casually mentioning highlights of the movie and bits and pieces, um, the prayer, Craig, the prayer at the end. I want to go back 
and and review that section of the movie and just write it down verbatim because it was a very moving moment there. Written by a guy I know. That's what's remarkable. A nice Jewish guy from Philadelphia. Well, he's not so nice. He and I would argue occasionally. I see the wisdom of some things David Sirota said to me. I remember sitting in a studio at the uh, uh, radio building, now iHeart, and David Sirota started talking to me about white privilege, which I poo-pooed, but Maybe you talked to me about climate change, and I wish I would have spoken out more about that then. And the thing is to do it now, and it's remarkable. Seriously, it's a great song that you have looking down, and you have a line in there about, we have a little more time before we cross the line. Right. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was prescient, but we can... <laughs> I think you are. You know, I think it was just... A, it was related to something different at the time, but it's nice that you dragged this this song out of mothballs and, and we're, we're looking at it because there are some lines that, that work for today. Right. It's Dave Gunner's music from what album? From my very first, Mountain of Dreams. And um, we've talked about you've hmm. never written a mountain song, but maybe this one is it. Have you ever thought... I'm on a mountain and I'm looking down, sort of that imagery. It could be the sequel. I just think that, well, where are you? Just in a dream is what you're talking about here? I I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. (laughs) It was so long ago, but... uh... It it's was, an it's, impactful week. It's a. It was about a transition, and that in that respect, it's. I think it's. Uh, you know, I, I think it's in keeping with with the, these comparisons of of where we're at now and the the planet and the changes that it, we're going through. This was more on a personal level, but obviously, the guy's going through some kind of um, crisis. He's he's in his the middle of his life, and he's looking back. Right. Yeah. Yep. But it's optimistic. Classic Dave Gunders, the stars in it. I even think you have imagery of the stars coming at you. And I thought Don't Look Up was tremendous because it used humor. And it wasn't beating you over the head with a message like Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth. Yes. And even that movie, it made predictions that really didn't pan out. It was going to happen this fast, that fast. Give us the truth, and now I think a lot of us are seeing it. And the other thing is, on climate change, I might not be convinced of everything beyond a reasonable doubt, but I am by preponderance of the evidence. That's the lawyer in me, so that's the action point. I think we have a problem. We, we better do something, because if we don't, and if the problem is as real as I think is probably true, we've got a problem. So... Let's figure it out. They're talking about life on other planets. They say we can retrofit Venus, Mars. Do you believe that? Um, the, the retrofit? I mean, Explain te- to me. they say terrafit is the word. Okay. To make it like Earth. Put a bubble oh, up. Oh, 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 okay. No, no, no. That would never happen. This is our dear Earth. This is our mother Earth. There's nothing like it. No, anyone thinking like that is desperate. Um, but what I wanted to say is, is that, you know, not only did the, the movie, um, you know, focus on climate change and, and how, but it, and 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 how we better look at it. We better make changes now. But it also focused on why we haven't, and some of the absurdity that's driving the, you know, the 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 conversation now. It's, right. It's very political as as well. Yes, and it's a lot about political systems. Is capitalism killing us? 
oil and gas industries. They want to make maximum profits. That's what corporations do. How do we manage that? Well, it's a mix. That's what I've always thought. And when I cop out on climate change, I say, look, I studied political science, not hard science. And I really don't have an aptitude for physics or chemistry or astronomy, calculus. But I did take political science, and I'm worried about America. And this week hit me like a ton of bricks, Dave Gunders. I want to tell you that I took January 6th personally, not like the people who were in the Capitol, although, you know, I love that building. Sam and I had the greatest day of our life there, but it just made me sick the way Charlottesville made me sick, the way the murder of Allen Berg makes me sick. It's the same hatred, the same white supremacy, the Proud Boys, those types, the types that chased your dad out of his native city, Munich. And it, it really disturbed me, and I deal with all sorts of crime victims. That's what I do for a living. And I feel like I'm sensitive to their trauma, but now I'm feeling it. Just right now, I'm getting that tightened-up feeling, and I listen to too much Denver Trump radio, which is where I used to work, and the disinformation I hear spewed. In the context of January 6th, I made the mistake of watching Tucker Carlson. I'm keeping up with the J6 committee, the courage of the Cheneys. God bless Liz Cheney from CC, her mom, Lynn Cheney, uh, even her dad who showed up, showed up to know that January 6th was a big deal. Was it for you? I mean, uh, absolutely. Yeah, no. And I appreciate it. I can hear your emotion. And, you know, it's it, it was a big deal a year ago. And it's and it's a, in some ways it's more gut wrenching now when we're when we're hearing how it's continued the lies, the conspiracy, think, conspiracy thinking, um, the, the hatred for the other side. It's still resonating and it hasn't it hasn't dissipated. And maybe it's even maybe it's even going to grow in it this has. year as we move towards, you know, the 2022 20, elections. So, yes, and uh, so I, I hear you. The capitulation of a whole political party, and even when they're caught with their pants down, here's the reaction to anybody. Well, the most of uh, right-wing talk radio is ignore it. Pretend the Democrats are blowing it out of proportion, but then you hear people who say, it was really Antifa, it was the FBI, it was the deep state, they're exaggerating. Really? A anyway, it's infuriating. And once again, this show, I'm revisiting the murder of Allen Berg, which was committed by the kind of people who stormed the Capitol, the kind of people who chanted Jews will not replace us in Charlottesville. And it's not me making the connection. It's Berg's great friend, David Savitz. And uh, this is a special show because it's the weekend, January 8, January 9. And I've tried to pin it down, and I know people who loved Allenberg, and they tell me January 9th, he would have been 88 years old. And God bless Allenberg. And as long as I have a microphone, I want to talk to people who knew him because I never met him. I heard him like you did, Dave Gunders. And I don't want his memory misrepresented. That's all I can do for him and put evidence out there and decide who really were friends of Allen Bergen, who, who was not. And somehow I think it's all tied together with uh, this January 6th stuff. 
Does it make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. You know, the other thing is, as long as we're talking about the the irrationality that's reigning now, it, how how about the whole, uh, the, you know, the the resistance to the vaccine and, and, and to science and to science, you know, and and truth. Um, you know, people get carried away. It's it's it it's it's political. It's it's um, you know, it's it it's relates. podcasting. It's what we're doing right now, except it's Joe Rogan who's got the biggest microphone. And the guy has skills, just like Rush Limbaugh had skills, but what's he using them for? And I'll tell you, I talked to my boys who listen to Joe Rogan. People do. He's popular. And he does long interviews, and he asks good questions, but he cozies up to some people that I think it's just revealing that this is not a good person. And uh, I said this to Sam. I'm sorry to interrupt you like this, Troubadour. But I said, you know what's a tell? And yeah, he said that's something that's revealing. Mm -hmm. I said, right. And we're all trying to size up people who's a good person, who's a bad person. If somebody uh, embraced Adolf Hitler, would you think they're a good person? Of course not, right? Of course not. And that's an extreme example. But... Then you get to Alex Jones, the guy who said Sandy Hook was faked, the guy who sells those same body supplements that Joe Rogan does, the guy who's invited to be on Joe Rogan even after starting those obvious conspiracy theories. He's a pal of you, Joe Rogan. I say to my son, think about that, because they are willing to associate there. And this guy... um, they were involved in January 6th as well. And and so Alex Jones was there on January 5th. I know the story. And Steve Bannon, if you're going to give an audience to these people, and if you're going to give an audience to disinformation about the vaccine, disinformation about January 6th, that uh, Ashley Babbitt was a hero of you. Did you read that AP report about Ashley Babbitt? Do you remember this woman, military veteran, who was climbing through that last right. secure I mean, door and she, she got shot. shot. Right, yeah. And now Donald Trump said she's a hero and it was outrageous that she was shot. I think if she would have gotten in, others would have followed and many people would have been killed. Do you agree with that? Very possibly. I mean, yeah. I think There we was were... an imminent threat of serious bodily injury or uh, it, death it, at it, that it, moment. It was. Yeah, I and, think. And, and right, and you might feel sorry for her, but then you come to realize that this woman had a history of incredibly aggressive conduct, including stealing a woman's husband. And then when the the lady whose husband got stolen told her to knock it off and stuff like that, she attacked her in a vehicle. She got got in traffic and started ramming her SUV into this woman three times. That's the kind of person we're talking about. That's the kind of person who Donald Trump, the GOP's hero, is lionizing and Ashley Babbitt, who believed in QAnon and all the bullshit that goes with that. And Trump likes that stuff. And QAnon was there. And that's a bigoted conspiracy theory, too. We've seen this before. It's the kind of stuff that killed Alan Berg. Anyway, how do you approach it? You know, you you had said there's, you know, when you talk to your son, there good people and bad people. How what they believe can 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 lead you to to 
to uh, that conclusion. But you know, I, I, when I when you were speaking, I was like, are 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 these people bad people or are they misled people? You know, and, and I don't mean to be. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, you know. But Alex I, Jones. I, I think it's a Sandy Hook. Right. Right, but no, forget Alex Jones for a moment. But his followers, I think, I think a lot of those people, they they certainly don't think they're bad people. Right, no, they're they're misled. They're they're yes. they're you know they're very um um they're they're easily swayed by their leaders by the people that they that they love Joe and respect. Rogan. And um, and I think a lot of the even, you know, when you hear the interview of some of these people who had who had stormed the Capitol later on, there was remorse. Right. Oh, we were we were misled. We we had no idea. You know, I'm sorry because I was taken up in the moment. And, and I, I think it's worthwhile looking at at, the, at 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 that because because then you don't you don't follow it with hate. You follow it with, well, how, how do we try to. Try to you know right. come come to a, come to a communication where these people can can look at a different side. Anyway, See, yeah, no, that's uh, the loving approach is is the right way, and it's my boys, and they're listening. I just hear this disinformation, and look, I don't have all the answers, especially when it comes to vaccines. I've already confessed I'm not good at science, but I. I also wonder why they didn't tell the truth. It was obvious J&J was inferior to me. I would not have taken that shot, but they said, take whatever shot. I researched it. I'm glad I got Moderna. Some of it was luck, but be straight with us. The Moderna was better, and the evidence showed it. I know you want to get rid of whatever's on the shelf, but don't tell me everything's the same. So that's just part of it. That's part of it, but I'm gonna. if they have a fourth booster, I'll take it. I'll be first in line. What about you? Well, I'll take it. You'll take it. Sure. How I'll do you cut I've it. been taking vaccines since I was an infant. I know. Back then, there was mumps and measles and everything else going on. Chicken pock, they, you know, everybody had the mark on their arms, you know, and, and uh, it's, it's amazing that, uh, that what's, what's, what's come to be this distrust of, of vaccines. You know, that's the thing about life, though. And I think things will work out. I wrote a column about good luck, bad luck. It's like golf, right? We're due for some good luck. And I hope that's true. Think about polio right before I was born. When you had a kid, that's probably, what were you, 12 already? No, I'm just kidding. But polio was a real concern for our parents raising oh, us. Yeah. and But not for me because Jonas Salk, a smart Jew from Pittsburgh, figured it out. Didn't yep. even want money for it. Said the whole world can have it. And we eradicated polio. Yeah. But what if Donald Trump would have been here? That guy. Right. Yeah. That guy who's led people off this cliff. It's like uh, looking down. It's going off a cliff following this guy. I don't see why they can't see that. It's tyranny. It always ends bad. What are you doing? I'm with you, Brother Craig. Let's listen to this incredible song from our troubadour, Dave Gunders, Looking Down.
crime victims for the last four decades. There's a great new Colorado law. It allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960 to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark 
money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on, this, on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Good morning. David Savage, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Craig. It's about time you came into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Should I call you David or Butchie? Uh, The last person who called me Butchie was about 40 years ago, and I had to take a double take as to see who he was referring to. And then when I looked at him, I realized it was a boyhood boyhood friend who hadn't seen me in 40 years. And all he knew me was by butching. Uh, You can call me whatever you'd like. Well, I will call you David, because I didn't know you back then. And frankly, I've gotten to know so much more about you because of your great book, Just in the Nick of Time, which is about the famous Carlson murder, and we will get to that. But there's a lot of biographical stuff in in here, and and I loved it. You've got a great writing style. You're self-deprecating, and you are youthful. Well, thank you. I mean, all the comments are flattering. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time uh, to read it. Uh, For the past couple of months since the book has been published, I've been gratified by the various comments and experiences people have had in reading the book. So I appreciate what you just said. Well, good, because uh, I'm a little upset with you. I told my son, Sam, who's home from college, I said, I like to think I have the most authentic Jewish upbringing. You know, my my dad from the west side of Denver, my mom from the east side, uh, kind of a perfect Denver mix. But then I look at your family, and I told my son, I I think David's got me beat because he had the same thing in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. But they vacationed in Atlantic City, Miami, even Beverly Hills. We never did that. His experience might be more authentic. If we, you know, if my family had known you and your family at the time, uh, knowing how gracious my parents were, they probably would have invited your family to join us. Oh, my God. We would fell. 
<laughs> my dad was a lawyer. His dad was a Denver lawyer. So that's my background. But you come from a different background. How many lawyers in your family, or were you the first? Uh, my uncle Joe, uh, who is one of my dad's eight siblings, uh, he was the sixth or seventh, I think he was the seventh child born of my grandparents, uh, Sarah and Julius Savitz. And it was my Uncle Joe who, when he came back from his service in World War II, uh, was given a couple of thousand dollars by my father, who by then had been working uh, in the American Furniture Jewelry Company for many years, uh, vowed to set aside monies for his brothers who went to war. And when they all came back, he gave them a similar amount of money, around $2,500, for them to do whatever they wanted to do. And my Uncle Joe chose to go to college and eventually to law school. So he was my mentor. He was my first mentor in law. Uh, and just a wonderful, wonderful man. And uh, I considered him to be a surrogate father uh, as I grew up. And your dad, your mom, loving relationship and tremendous success in what was it, retail, wholesale, a little of everything? That's more authentic Jewish as well. My dad was uh, a teenager. I think I'd rush home from school and go to the business that his then cousin Abe had owned uh, to clean the toilets and set aside uh, carpets for salesmen to walk door to door in the Wilkes-Barre area to sell house to house. And that's when my dad got involved in what was then called uh, the house to house installment business and, and sold carpets, blankets, pots and pans to customers. And it was during the depression. Uh, Customers couldn't afford an outlay of five, ten, fifteen dollars in cash. So my my cousin Abe's uh, uncle Abe's uh, concept was the customer could pay a dollar down. The salesman would come back every week, collect another dollar on the bill, and when he came back that subsequent week, uh, he would try to uh, encourage the customer to perhaps buy something else to add to the bill. And uh, that was the, uh, the strategy behind that business and something my dad did began doing as a youngster and continued throughout his life. And how big did that business get? From one store in Wilkes-Barre, it branched into maybe 12 to 15 stores uh, that were primarily located in the Pennsylvania and New York area. Uh, they eventually branched out to one store in Miami, Florida, uh, another store in Fort Worth, Texas, and another store in Los Angeles. How cool. I bet your parents were great, and I like that you wrote about them lovingly. Your Uncle Joe, your first mentor. And we're going to get to your Denver attorney mentor, Walter Garash, because he's fascinating. But I do not want to bury the lead. David Savitz, because 
we've known each other a long time, and we'll get back around to that. But you ended up going to law school out here. You fell in love with it. Holy cow, the number of times I've heard that story. But you've been here a long time now. You've established an incredible practice and tremendous roots. But uh, along the way, you made the acquaintance of Alan Berg, and I'm fascinated by the guy. I never met him. I listened to him. He would have turned 88 this January, and I found out that you were well acquainted with him. I did that interview with Stephen Singular, one of my proudest podcasts, and you can add to my knowledge base and that of my audience, and I think he's worth talking about here on his 88th birthday, don't you? Well, he certainly was a uh, a character in Denver lore, and he turned out to be a good friend of mine uh, during the time that he and I knew one another. Uh, as a young lawyer, I think I was practicing maybe four or five years at the time. I began my practice in 1968, and uh, from the inception, uh, I my interest was in litigation both criminal defense work and civil personal injury. And at the time, which would have been in the early 1970s, I was officing at the Western Federal Savings Building, which no longer exists, but then was at 17th in California. And I had to walk from that building uh, one block west and turn right and go past the Albany Hotel in order to get to the federal courthouse, which was a few blocks away. And one day, as I'm walking past the Albany Hotel, on the ground level, uh, my attention is caught to the open window. And what appeared to be, I couldn't tell if it was a shaggy dog or a human being, but there was a person sitting at a desk uh, with long, shaggy hair, with a full beard, He was smoking a cigarette, drinking a cup of coffee, and he was apparently uh, the proprietor or owner of this uh, business called the Shirt Broker, uh, which sold custom shirts. And uh, I was always a clothes horse as a youngster, so my attention took me into the store. Uh, He and I introduced ourselves to one another and that was the beginning of my relationship with Alan Berg. Uh, our first meeting involved my sitting down, asking him who he was, where he was from, him doing the same thing with me. Uh, and he began talking nonstop for about an hour. And I just sat there and listened. And uh, that was the, the kind of MO that existed between us Uh during the course of our more than 12 year or so relationship before he passed away uh, by a horrific death. Just like our conversation, we talk about being Jewish. We don't run from it. I love that part of your book. You talk about your Jewish upbringing. Berg had a, a Jewish upbringing, a little different. I don't think he felt the same about his parents, but I'll let you fill that in. But was there a lot of Jewish stick between you right at the outset? Well, you know, certainly that was one of the, the, the mutualities that, that uh, struck between us, uh, him knowing my background, my knowing his. It, it wasn't difficult 
to understand that the last name Berg uh, probably had Jewish origin and my last name Savitz uh, likewise. And so that was certainly a similarity that we had, a uh, mutuality, uh, being, uh, my being a, a young lawyer, him having practiced uh, law in Chicago, uh, and a lot of his practice involved criminal defense work, and I was an upstart lawyer uh, with, with a passion for criminal defense. So we had a lot of uh, traits uh, of, of mutuality of interest. Uh, that brought us together. What did he tell you about his legal practice and how he ended up losing his ability to practice law? Yeah, he was very frank, very open, wasn't bashful uh, about telling me that uh, he had a successful uh, criminal law practice. Uh, but by the same token, uh, there were demons in his life, which uh, he self-medicated by drinking quite a bit. Uh, the drinking got the better part of him. Uh, yeah, his his practice, his license to practice uh, was in jeopardy uh, as a result of his drinking and uh, and and conduct uh, relevant to it. And it was determined that he should get out of the practice of law. Uh, his wife, you know, he his wife uh, Judith uh, was from Denver. Uh, Alan went to school as a uh, young college student in Denver, so he knew the area, and they thought uh, a new beginnings would exist in them returning uh, to this state. And uh, he opened uh, the share broker business of his, and, uh, and that's that was the next path that he took. But he always remained passionate about the law. Uh, he was always interested to know about my cases. He was always eager to talk about his philosophy of criminal law and the obligation of the criminal lawyer uh, with respect to uh, a client, uh, however distasteful the client's acts may have been. Did he want to go back to practicing law? Did he have that aspiration? I don't know that that was something that he believed was realistic for him. Uh, it seemed to me that the practice of law for him uh, caused so much stress and so much anxiety that he medicated with alcohol that returning to that practice might get him tempted to return to alcohol, which he has successfully beaten uh, and was a recovered alcoholic of which he was awfully proud and rightfully How so. How did he do that? And when you were hanging out with him, what other people drank, what would he do? Water, mm -hmm. uh, co you know, coffee. Coffee was his omnipresent drink. Stephen uh, Sangular wrote 50 cups a day. And I know Judith, you know Judith. She sure. backs it up. He was a nonstop coffee drinker. Tell us, you meet him at the shirt broker. He starts talking your head off for an hour. And did you become friends? Yes, because after that initial meeting, uh, my interest primarily of going into a shop was to buy shirts and have him fit me 
for custom shirts. I used to buy my uh, suits and sport jackets and what have you in New York uh, at a family-owned manufacturer, and I would come back to Denver uh, to buy my shirts and ties. And when I found out Alan had opened his shop and would, would produce custom shirts and had a wide array of ties, what I would do is I would, when I would come back from New York City with a new cache of clothing, I'd schlep it into a store, throw it down on his uh, table, tell him I'm going to court, I'll be back in about an hour or so. Uh, when I come back, tell me what shirts I should be getting and what ties go with it. Um, write notes on the shirts, um, write a note on the suit jacket as to what shirt and tie goes goes together, and uh, I'll have my wardrobe. And this would be our MO from time to time whenever I would return from New York. And in the interim... And why, uh, why, why especially did you need that help? Because I couldn't discern colors. I couldn't tell green from brown. I couldn't tell blue from purple. I couldn't tell... Um, the, the, the close hues I could not distinguish. Essentially, a form of color blindness. And uh, Alan had a gimlet eye for all those colors and had a, a flair for fashion. And he, too, was a close horse and always fashionably dressed. And I liked the way uh, he dressed, although I wanted him to make my clothing a little bit more conservative. Uh, than what he wore, and uh, it worked out well. And uh, that business relationship uh, morphed into a combination business and and genuine friendship. So, what would you do? Go out to lunch, or just stop by his shop all the time since it was so close to your office? Yeah, t- typically it was stopping by and sitting down and schmoozing with him. Uh, when he eventually got into the uh, radio talk show business. Uh, He was very gracious in referring clients my way. Uh, There was often a caller uh, who had an issue uh, that cried out for legal representation. And Alan was very gracious in saying, here's who you need to call. And he mentioned my name and I would get the call from the person. And he would say that on the air? Well, I, I would not be listening at the time. I, I would get a phone call from him and or uh, the, the new client to say, you know, Alan told me to call you. Now, the shirt broker, before we leave that, was it successful? Well, he went from this one-man shop on the storefront of the Albany Hotel to, I believe, the Tabor Center and opened a larger shirt broker. He then went from there, I believe, to Larimer Square, where he uh, had a partnership with a a lovely and very, very attractive African-American woman. And they opened up a combination customized shoe and shirt store. Uh, and that was the last 
to my knowledge, retail business he had before he went into the talk show business. Did you get to know Judith, the former Judith Halpern? She comes yeah. from incredible uh, Jewish family in Denver, uh, yeah. long ties to Temple Emanuel and liberal causes. I, again, yeah, but- I recommend everybody read Stephen Singular's book because uh, there are a lot of good books on the Berg murder, some not so good, but... Uh, the bottom line is that uh, I want to know about Alan Berg, the person. That's why I love having David Savitz on. Tell us what you knew about him and Judith. Well, what I what I observed was a very uh, respectful and loving relationship between the two where they had understood that issues had occurred early in their marriage that drove them apart. And then when he worked awfully hard to correct those issues, especially the alcoholism, uh, and then he was suffering from headaches and seizures, she would often be by his side. So it was a love that had endured uh, throughout the course of their divorce and something that, uh, that brought them back together in an effort to reconcile. And I remember vividly being at their duplex or townhome in the Cherry Creek area. And I had thought that their neighbors were other Jewish friends of mine at the time. But I remember vividly sitting uh, in Alan and Judith's uh, living room uh, at one time, just socializing with them. And the observations that I just made previously uh, was what I was struck with. And I know Judith, and I've studied up on Alan Berg. The thing about Judith, even at her advanced age, and we're all advanced now, aren't we? But she's witty, and she's quick with a joke, quick with a sharp line. And I can imagine she and Alan had a repartee that was really something in their prime. Yeah, you know, beyond Alan's exterior veneer, of a gruff talk show host uh, with an acerbic tongue uh, and a short temper. Uh, that was his talk show host persona. But one-on-one, he was kindly, he was gracious, he was understanding, he was respectful. Uh, and he had a great, great sense of humor, as you, as you just observed with Judith. And that's what I observed between the two of them. And they were family. They had gone through so much together. They didn't have children, but they went through his tumor and his brain, the alcoholism. She was there for the ups and downs in Chicago. And even after the divorce, they still had a love of each other. But you tell me, I never met Alan Berg. It seems to me he was a womanizer and uh, who isn't, uh, you know, interested in females, especially if you are single and available. Nothing wrong with it. I'm not putting him down, but he liked female company. Am I right? Well, during, you know, during when they were divorced, you know, he obviously was a single man. Uh, he was a very, very bright guy, great sense of humor. Uh, was Women found him very attractive, understandably. Uh, and I believe he had a uh, uh, a long relationship with 
the woman who was his partner in the shoe and clothing business, uh, among other women whom he courted along the way. So, you know, as a single man, as a bachelor, uh, one, one should not be surprised that he enjoyed the company of a beautiful woman. I'm not surprised at all. And that shaggy dog look, I guess, woman liked him, although he was really thin. But so are you. And you were out there, and you write about that in your book. What was it like to have a night on the town with Alan Berg? <clears throat> well, we, we each had different addictions. You know, he, he once had an addiction uh, of alcoholism, and uh, uh, that morphed into an addiction uh, of coffee and, and cigarette smoking. My addiction was exercise and work. Uh, as one judge uh, poignantly put it when I was appearing before him with a client of mine for sentencing, the judge looked at the defendant who was there for drug trafficking and he commented upon the different addictions that people have. And he commented that the client had a, uh, a, a, an addiction that got him into serious trouble. It was a negative addiction. And he said, the attorney who's standing beside you has a positive addiction. He likes to run every day. So, you know, that, that, that's something that Alan and I shared in terms of having different kinds of addictions. Uh, but he turned his into positive ones as well uh, once he stopped drinking. And one cannot fault him uh, for wanting to... Uh, drink as much caffeine as he did, uh, or smoke as much as he wanted. Uh, those were certainly uh, decent substitutes for the the one of the insidious one of alcoholism. But what would happen? Did you go out at night ever? Nightlife? I know you love to go to ball games. Did you ever take yeah. Berg with you? No, usually no. I never I never saw him. Uh, as as a uh, a great great sports fan, uh, and we did not go. I did, I, I went to Nuggets games, um, forty of them a season. Uh, I went to football. Uh, I, I, by that time, you know, I, my son was a, a teenager, so he and I would go together, and um, I would take dates to those. Kinds of things. I know you write about it, and I love basketball. You were there for that record-setting triple overtime, December 13, 1984, Denver, Detroit, and it was your first date with your beloved Robin. Yes, that's December 13, 1983. Uh, was our, yeah, it was our first date, uh, and uh, she had two young daughters who I think were maybe six or eight at the time. So she had a babysitter uh, for them. The game went into the first overtime, and I looked at her, and I said, is it okay if we stay? And she said yes. Second overtime came, I asked her the same thing, and she said yes. Third overtime came, and she begrudgingly said yes, because by then she was into the game as well. But I still had to feed her because I promised her dinner. So after dinner, when we got back to her place, uh, I reached into my pocket, found out what the babysitter cost, uh, gave Robin the money for the babysitter, 
uh, and that's according to her when she fell in love. What a first date. And you drop names. You don't really expand on the fact that you were good buddies with the late Carl Scherer, who just passed away, legendary a GM guy who ran the Nuggets back in the day. It, it seems yeah. like you were great. Then he introduced you to Robin or his, his wife. No, it was his wife, Marcia, uh, who took me to a, uh, a Christmas party uh, thrown by the company for which both Marcia and Robin worked called Carrick's, C-A-R-I-K apostrophe S. It was an upscale women's clothing store in Cherry Creek. And Carl was out of town. Nuggets were playing, uh, I think, Utah. And Marcia asked me if I would escort her to the party. And I said, sure. And that's when I first met Robin. Uh, Carl and Marcia Shear uh, were some of my closest friends uh, over the course of the last 30 plus years. And how's it worked out with Robin? Uh, she's been my closest wife for the past 34 years. I love that expression. Now, <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't know Alan Berg. I'll say it again. But I listened to him, and I was a young deputy DA, as you all know, because we've tangled in court a time or three or four. But sure. the bottom line is um, I, I cannot – I'm wondering – I'll put it in a non-leading form. If Allenberg were alive today, what would he be saying about current events? I'm afraid he would be very, very disappointed. Uh, I'm afraid, I shouldn't just say I'm afraid, uh, I'm quite certain that he and I, among others, who shared our views about today's politics and the divide in our country, that we would be on the phone doing Zoom calls, uh, what have you, uh, yelling at one another uh, about what's happening in this country. We would not be yelling at one another to criticize ourselves, but to, but to be so upset as to what's happening in the country now. Uh, the last, the years before our current president was elected were some of the darkest years that I personally uh, have spent in this country politically and ideologically and, and have been very uh, dismayed about how the country has taken the turn that it has. And, and it's still happening, David Savitz. And thank you well, for answering yeah. my question, but it's been led by talk radio. And you would think that there would be hosts in Denver who would stand up to Trump. I did. I do it on my podcast, but there aren't many followers. I have to believe Alan Berg, if he had access to a microphone at KOA right now, what would he say about Trump, January 6th, the big lie, Charlottesville before it? What would Alan Berg say? You knew him. I didn't. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he would be vitriolic in terms of his criticisms of Trump, the January 6th insurrection. He would attribute the insurrection to to its being conducted and orchestrated by Trump. He would vilify 
Trump at every turn, every step of the way he could. He would not hold back uh, his animus uh, towards this man. I've studied up on those horrible miscreants, those bigots, those neo-Nazis that killed Alan Berg. And I think those are the guys who would have been there on January 6th waving the Trump flag. Do you agree? Yeah, well, he, he, you know, yeah, he would see in, in, in the face of, in, he, would, he would compare the faces of the order, the ones who killed him, with the faces in Charlottesville and the faces on January 6th. He would say they're all the same. Uh, he, he would be as critical uh, and, and disgusted with them as, as one could imagine. Uh, he would not hold back in terms of how vile he thought they were, uh, how anti-Semitic they were. And not only were they anti-Semitic, Craig, but these are people who are anti-anything other than pure white. So they are anti shades of brown, shades of red, uh, Asian last names, anything that is not pure white. These people, these vile people are against them. And Alan would rail against them uh, to his last dying day. Alan Berg, he would rip people on the air. Everybody remembers him for that, including black people, women, anybody. Was he a bigot or the opposite of a bigot? Uh, he was not. He was not a bigot. Uh, he he uh, he was he was anti bigotry and anti racist. So if he found that someone was a bigot or was a racist, he would rail against them. He was very understanding. Uh, of all races, colors, and creeds, as evidenced by the partnership, the business partnership he had with this African-American woman. Right. I have no way of knowing all of his friends, but I'm learning about it. Harold Dubinsky produced for me uh, a beautiful tape of Al Zen with Alan Berg. I played it on my podcast. I think you did me the courtesy of listening to it. So I think Al Zen was a good friend of his. I know he remained close with Judith. Uh, You sound like a good friend. Who else were his good friends? Well, uh, just to to step back a bit, um, I was so gracious and thoughtful and with what great foresight that Harold Dubinsky had the foresight to take that conversation between Alan Berg and Al Zen as I listened to it, it brought back fond memories of both of those men uh, whom, uh, whom I adored, um, each of them. Uh, for a while, uh, Peter Boyles uh, was Alan's friend uh, because they shared a passion for conversation and shared a passion for intellectual conversations. Um, that relationship, uh, I think, took a turn in, in a different direction uh, as a result of the success that Peter enjoyed with a couple of his contracts on radio. And uh, 
the two became competitors on the air and like something happened between the two of them uh where where they lost that that closeness that they had once enjoyed well they started competing against each other right that's correct and That's what was correct. it? You said it was Peter's contract, or was it Alan's contract? Who got well, the big contract first? Yeah, Peter got the big contract first, and Alan thought that he deserved something similar, and uh, he wanted me and Walter Garash uh, to represent him on his next contract negotiation. Regrettably, uh, that never occurred because of Alan's demise. I see. Yeah, reading Singular's book, they weren't paying much. And Singular doesn't really address that aspect. But wow, you and Walter were approached. And we will get to the legendary Walter Grash. But I want to go back to this conflict with Boyles. And how do you know that their relationship dropped off? Because Berg expressed that to you? Yeah. I mean, that's essentially, you know, I... I became friends with both of them uh, because uh, I had mutual friends with both Alan and Peter. And uh, I knew more from Alan's viewpoint uh, that he, Alan, uh, wanted believed that he should get paid on a par with Peter. It, it wasn't Peter's place to... To, negoti to negotiate for Alan, you know, Alan sure. had to get, you know, separate representatives. But you would think a rising tide would lift all boats, so I'm not sure why there was a personal fallout. That's what I'm trying to understand. Yeah, uh, that's something that uh, I think, uh, you know, Peter would have to share if he's willing to talk about it. Uh, Alan would merely say that, uh, you know, things were not as rosy with him and Peter as they used to be, in my sense, more than Alan saying this outright had to do with the contract that Peter got. And didn't it happen that 60 Minutes did a profile of important talk show hosts and they gave a prominent role to Alan Berg as opposed to Peter Boyles? Howard Stern was featured. Do you remember that at all? Very vaguely. Anyway, I don't know the source of that friction, but I've heard about it. I've heard about it from Judith, Stephen Singular, and now you as the lawyer. And what I find kind of disgusting is Peter Boyles, when he talks about Allenberg, just talks about himself and says they were best friends. And I don't know if they were or they weren't, but I know that Boyles, if you just Google Berg, Boyles, Singular, you will come up with a Chicago Tribune article, Allen's hometown, recounting the trial in Seattle where Boyles gets up with a big pinky ring saying he's the dominant talk show host in Denver, and he was best friends with Alan Burke. And I don't know, he keeps trading on the fact that he was best friends with Alan Burke. You knew them both. Do you think that was true at the time of his death? Mm -hmm. Well, not so much at the time of his death, because at the time of his death, uh, there, there was, I believe, some cooling of their relationship. I think it was before the time of Alan's death that the two of them were very close. 
So Peter is certainly right in, in, in terms of at one point in time, the two were very, very close. Now, you know, the, the notion of Peter extolling his own worth uh, is not too uh, suspicious because I think people in the talk show business, uh, many of them have to believe uh, that they are, that they have a strong voice. Uh, and, you know, the, the ratings of some of them will show that they have a great uh, follow, followership. And you know so, who started that shtick in my judgment? I'm not the all-time expert, but the first guy I heard bragging on himself, how smart he was, et cetera, was Alan Berg. And he came up with that shtick before Rush Limbaugh, before anybody else that I heard. That was part of his, wow, listen to this guy. He's so full of himself, right? Yes, and, and that was part of his talk show host persona uh, because there was probably a divide uh, among his listening audience where some considered him to be a wholesale jerk uh, and and, uh, and opinionated, uh, while others thought that he was the most intelligent, funniest, most insightful person in the whole world. But the but the long and short of it was he had a a, a following of people uh, from both sides of the aisle. Uh, who were eager to listen to him, some who reveled in criticizing him, and some who reveled in adoring him. Right. He was simultaneously voted the most popular and least popular personality in Denver. I think that was part of the Stephen Singular interview, and I know for sure because Dan Reeves just passed away and he got introduced at a Nuggets game. Maybe you were there, and it was Alan Berg who was selected by KOA to introduce him. And they said, and now to introduce the Broncos' new head coach, Alan Berg. And what was it, McNichols back then? Or he, yeah. He, he, sure. The crowd erupted with boos and cheers. And then Reeves came out. And as they walked off, Reeves looked at Berg and his shaggy dog appearance and said, who are you? <laughs> you know, like, because he really uh, was something. Alan Bergen, before we leave this subject, you know, I've watched Peter Boyle's run uh, KNUS for a while now, and we followed his career, and he got in bed with Trump. He looked in the mirror, maybe he saw himself in Donald Trump with the birther crap and with um, the, the bigotry, the stuff against, uh, you know, immigrants. And in any event, he went whole hog in with Donald Trump. And you've already said that Alan Berg would have completely opposed Donald Trump and everything he stood for. And I'm just wondering how those two could have ever been best friends, given those divergent views of such a, a central issue. Well, if you, if, if you followed Peter's career, as I did uh, in, in, in his radio talk show host career, there was a evolution or transformation within Peter, whereas at one time I viewed him as a civil rights advocate and libertarian, uh, and he was always fighting for the underdog, and he was always empathic for issues of civil rights and what have you. Something happened along the way, 
uh, I don't know if it was the John Bonet Ramsey case that um, became a cause celeb uh, for Peter for a number of years, uh, which uh, attracted a large audience uh, of curiosity with what he had to say about it. I don't or think it was, it was John Bonet, although, yeah, um, I, I would I would say he he similarly harped on birtherism for year after year. In in terms of national leadership, and if you had a top 10 birthers in America, Donald Trump would should be on the list, and so would Peter Boyle. So he, he got a huge audience from his birtherism. Well, that's not surprising, given the divide in this country and the popularity of people like Rush Limbaugh and the commentators on Fox News. You know, those are very highly rated programs. So obviously, there's a large population that is listening to those people. Uh, So uh, sometimes uh, a professional is astute enough to know where his Red is being buttered and will go to that site. Follow uh, the money. And, you, and you know, he metamorphosed on guns. And Alan Berg was, his next day's show, uh, when he got killed, he was planning a big gun control show. He hated guns. And he got killed by, uh, you know, an assault weapon in the hands of a convicted felon. Yet sure. some people on the radio saw fit to advertise for gun stores. I always turned that down. I don't want to be selling a gun who might do, you know, to somebody who might do something like that. Anyway, again, follow the money. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's regrettably uh, a, a, a capitalism fabric of our country. Well, then maybe Alan Berg, do you think he would have sold out? He liked uh, advertising. He kind of was a leader when it came to live advertising. He had tons of sponsors. And do you think he would ever advertise for a gun store? No. Why not? Uh, Because that was not part of what he was all about. He was not someone who would uh, sanction or approve of violence. Uh, He understood uh, that a weapon in the hands of an ill-suited person is a recipe for disaster. You know, a disaster that happened to you, and you did not write about it in the book, and I'm a trial lawyer, too, and sometimes our personal life and devastating things can happen while we are in trial. And you've written this magnificent book, uh, Just in the Nick of Time, about the amazing uh, double homicide of uh, the Carlson parents. And I put it together with Alan Berg and your friendship. You started the trial, what, on June 6, 1984, which was your birthday, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And then the trial lasted how long? A couple of weeks. I think uh, Alan was murdered before Judge Day. I think it. I think our first trial with Judge Day ended around June 20th. Right, and he got killed on June 18, 1984. And I wonder what that did to you. Oh, my God, your good friend murdered and you're in the trial of your life? Yeah, I, mean, I, was, I was distraught, but... Uh, like like many of us who, who practice criminal defense work, my client's illness was a extreme reflection of this concept of dissociation, 
Uh, we as human beings learn to dissociate bad news in order to proceed with what we have to do that day or that hour. And, and that's how I moved ahead. I put aside for the time being uh, my sadness uh, and anger with respect to Alan's death and continued to finish the Carlson case, knowing that I have time when that case was over uh, to mourn Alan's death. You have a beautiful line at the outset of Chapter 11. Murder cases have voracious appetites. Mm-hmm. And this was a, a devastating crime. It happened August 18, 1983. Tell everybody about your client and uh, how and why he shot his parents. You acknowledge that, right? He shot them on a deserted road in Douglas County. Tell everybody what happened. There's no question uh, about uh, that the murder of Rod and Marilyn Carlson uh, was at the hands of their 19-year-old son, uh, Ross. The question is, uh, what was his mental capacity at the time? And as our investigation of his mental health evolved after being hired to represent him. We learned from various experts that he suffered from significant mental disease. The mental disease that the consensus of our experts concluded Ross suffered from at the time was called multiple personality disorder, which is a mental disease that your listeners might be familiar with the famous case of Sybil, where different so-called ego states or personalities uh, become present in the individual and take over the individual's presentation. Before we get to Ross Carlson's multiple personality disorder... Um, the most memorable thing for me, and I was a young prosecutor in a different county when this happened, but I think the matter that fascinated all of us was this 19-year-old was extraordinarily handsome, well-built, and he looked like a movie star. Am I right? I often tell people that uh, he reminded me when I first saw him of this famous actor uh, called Tab Hunter. Uh, he would have been an actor during the 70s and what have you. Uh, and, and Ross had this modeling look about him as reflected on the cover of my book. And uh, he was just a dashing, dashing, handsome-looking young man. In fact, some modeling agencies had taken photos of him. And how did he get that physique? <clears throat> he uh, did work out. He exercised. He, he was a weightlifter. Uh, he tried his hand at wrestling, uh, was not very good at it, uh, but uh, didn't make sure that uh, his body was in good shape with weightlifting and what have you. So even- how, yeah, I mean, it's amazing how we all get cases, but 
This one is particularly fascinating, and you ended up being his lawyer for a long time, interacting with him in custody. It's an amazing story. Remind every or tell everybody how you got involved and how you got the great Walter Garash also involved. Uh, early on in my law career, I, w- I would say in the early 70s or what ha- have you, uh, Walter and I, among other lawyers, had a case in Jefferson County, a uh, criminal case uh, involving people accused of drug crimes. And this concept of wiretapping or eavesdropping was involved in the case. Uh, I advanced an argument to the district court judge uh, to throw out the wiretap, which would mean that all the conversations that these various defendants had among one another involving drug trafficking would be thrown out if my argument succeeded. Uh, Long story short, it did succeed. Uh, Walter was very impressed. Wait a sec, we can't make this story short because your argument was the elected DA had to approve the wiretap. Correct. And I'm amazed you won on that because I always thought that a deputy DA or chief deputy had all the power of the boss. I had a, uh, our our family had a very good friend, Byron Rogers, who was the U.S. congressman from Denver for many, many years. And when I got this case, along with Walter, I contacted Congressman Rogers and said, I know that the U.S. Senate uh, had hearings regarding the federal statute after which our Colorado state statute was modeled, can you get me the research and the the transcript of the congressional hearings and Senate hearings regarding why the basis for each, the basis for the passage of each of these provisions of this law? And he said, yes. So he sent me a 300 or 400 page pamphlet uh, from the Senate uh, that described each and every provision of this federal wiretap statute and the legal basis for its passage. And it was clear that the law requiring the attorney general or the district attorney, that the approval from that person had to be one that made the application for the wiretap to the judge. God love you. So the theory is that you're going to invade somebody's privacy. You better take accountability. It better be somebody in charge who can be voted out of office if it's a mess up, right? Exactly. It must be a responsible official that the law can point to as that person was the one who authorized it. And in our, in our Colorado state case that Walter and I had in Jefferson County, I found out that the assistant DA in Jefferson County was the one who approved the wiretap against our clients. It wasn't the, the DA. And so I argued that the, because the Colorado statute was modeled after the federal statute that it was not followed appropriately. Uh, and thus, 
the uh, the entire wiretap had to be thrown well, there out. There you go. So you're not and only one of the kids, but you're impressed the great Walter Garash. And then the two of you get involved in the killing of Marilyn Carlson, Rod Carlson, summer of 83. Um, you know, it hits close to home. They lived on South Forest Court in Littleton, not too far from Southeast Denver, my roots. And then um, to be found... It was a Cottonwood State Park. It was a Cottonwood State Park. Where would we go to find the the last moments of Rod and yeah, Marilyn? Yeah, Cottonwood Division. It was oh, a Cottonwood new, Division. Yeah, a new development in Douglas County, uh, where these people were found face down, shot each in the back of the head. They were found by construction workers who were working on homes in that site. And uh, Jeff the Douglas County Sheriff's Department was called, and that was the beginning of that investigation. And Rod Carlson's vehicle was located at Tamarack Square. Talk about close to my home. Yeah, uh, and the theory was that whoever committed the murder uh, drove that vehicle from the scene of the crime back to Tamarack Square. And the government had evidence uh, from a friend of Ross's that the two of them were at a movie theater in Tamarack Square during which Ross excused himself and told the friend he had to do something. He left the movie theater apparently to meet his parents and to drive him to this location. And then he, when he came back, he told the friend supposedly that he, he took care of what he had to do uh, and something about the Lone Ranger uh, was not going to continue to ride again or words to that effect. And that's when the police began putting two and two together. And he gets arrested, and then you go meet him in custody. How did that happen? After he got arrested, you know, he, he wanted to hire Walter, but the, the kid had no money, obviously. So uh, the question for Walter was, well, how do I get paid? Walter knew that the parents had left a will and a living and a, uh, a trust in the will where their estate would be held in trust for the benefit of their son, Ross, and Walter called me and said, go to the probate court and, and persuade the probate judge to, to allow the trustee of that trust to pay attorney fees for Ross's defense. Oh, my God. That's the all-time joke about chutzpah, the, the <laughs> orphan who kills his parents and then uh, asks for mercy because he's an orphan. Yeah, so, you know, I succeeded in that effort. Uh, how? Tell everybody about that and how much money uh, was the defense entitled to? Enough for you to work on this for years, right? Yeah, you know, Colorado law prohibited an individual who was responsible for the death of someone to inherit the estate from that some person from that person. I I convinced the judge that Ross was not convicted of anything. Therefore, the statute would not apply to him because he was merely accused of something. So there was a combination of arguments made to the uh, probate judge. And he essentially said, uh, the trustee cannot be faulted 
if he agreed to pay for the defense, nor could he be faulted if he agreed not to pay for the defense. Now, the contingent beneficiaries of that trust were Ross's grandparents, and I hired a lawyer, and I persuaded the grandparents to approve of the payment of the trust proceeds for Ross's defense. And there may have, there may have been anywhere from two hundred and fifty to $300,000 principal amount in that trust, primarily from life insurance proceeds. And that was the, the, the proceeds that, that funded the defense of Ross throughout the course and length of his case. And along the way, you were able to contact and pay top experts, including the doctor who worked on this civil matter. And, you know, Walter was more skeptical than you. You had some amazing sessions in jail with Ross, and eventually you hit on a defense which seemed to be true, and it's that multiple personality disorder. It's come up a lot lately because Herschel Walker is running for U.S. Senate. I don't know if you've thought about that, but he yeah. said he's been diagnosed with it. Is it a real thing, multiple personality disorder? Well, you know, it's there is a uh, the Bible of mental diseases and disorders is called the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, and in that manual, uh, the American Psychiatric Association um, as a body lists all the mental diseases and defects that they recognize as being legitimate and multiple personality disorder has been a part of the DSM-3, the DSM for many, many years. Uh, it is now um, known as dissociative identity disorder, DID, as opposed to its former name, MPD, but it has been part of the, the psychiatric lexicon of diseases and defects uh, for 50 or more years. And what causes uh, it? It's primarily caused by repeated acts of horrific childhood abuse, oftentimes sexual abuse. And uh, what, what happens uh, is that a child who is being abused oftentimes by a loved one, i.e. the person who was supposed to love the child the most, uh, the child believes that psychologically he believes, he or she can't get angry with the caregiver. So as a method of defending against that anger, the child dissociates that anger uh, and emerges a happy face, and someone uh, who does not express anger towards the loved one. So what you have now is a division of the child, an angry person and a happy person. Uh, and there is a wall of psychological amnesia between these two different what we call ego states, they were called personalities at the time, uh, exist. And the child psychologically has learned, or his, his, you know, his psyche has learned 
that if there are parts of him that have to deal with other aspects of his life, then he can split off other ego states to take care of that aspect of his life. For example, with Ross, there was a depressed and morose personality. It was called Gray. There was a personality who all he all he did was weep as a young child. That was Blue. There was a personality who intellectually, as a 17-year-old as a adolescent, uh, was a great storyteller, a great bon vivant, uh, a great ladies' man. That was Justin. There was a personality that was the intellectual uh, among the group, one who could have uh, probing conversations uh, with people beyond his age. And this was 42-year-old Steve. There was someone who was a gruff gangster, uh, or, and this was called Norman. And then there was a vicious, vicious, violent person who, at the snap of fingers, uh, could, could tear someone's heart out, and this was black. So these fragments, or these ego states, psychologically develop within this individual over time, as events occur in his or her life. Did you develop evidence? I know the answer because I read your great book just in the nick of time. In fact, the uh, the personality, the bon vivant, the hell fellow well met, Justin, he had more than just a first name, right? What was his full name? <clears throat> well, uh, he, he, he was Justin and... Uh, uh, he was referred to from time to time as Justice Nicholas, middle name Nicholas, N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S, last name Time, T-I-M-E. Uh, Justin, Justin Nicholas Time, hence right. the name of your book, Justin the Nick of Time. Correct. And Ross would explain to friends of his uh, that he had a twin brother who lived in Phoenix uh, named Justin. And that's how uh, he, he was able to get around that concept of him actually suffering from MPD and how he explained away uh, the, this individual named Justin. So, so what evidence did you develop that supported the fact that uh, young Carlson had suffered this kind of trauma which would have led to this, uh, what was known then as multiple personality disorder. That was one of the challenges of our case, was to develop evidence of repeated and horrific acts of child abuse. And one of the hallmarks of this uh, disease is that the individual represses the incidents of childhood abuse. If they didn't repress them, they wouldn't be able to to live in the way they in the way they do uh, with the existence of these various personalities. Uh, and the way you uncover these acts of abuse is through lengthy 
professional, competent psychotherapy, often hypnotherapy, by which techniques you're able to have a personality who remembers or who was victimized by the abuse to actually talk about it and mention what had happened and who the perpetrator was. We had some evidence by virtue of information that Ross gave to many of our experts, such as him remembering when he was a youngster, he may have been four or five years old, that one of his parents, his father, would come into Ross's room. Uh, probably was not four or five, it was probably when, when Ross was still being potty trained and smear his face with feces. Yeah. Uh, something sort, of, that, sort of like you do with the dog, put their nose in it, don't do Exactly. Yeah, and that was the, the method of toilet training that one of Ross's personalities remembered as having occurred and him expressing and recalling that incident to one or more of our doctors. Don't you feel bad? I mean, you've been doing this a long time, but my practice is a little different than yours. In uh, my upbringing, my heart goes out to these two victims, Marilyn Carlson, Rod Carlson, shot dead by their 19-year-old son, and they can't really defend themselves. Um, but you write that it was kind of an unhappy marriage forced by an out-of-wedlock uh, impregnation. Ross was the only child. I mean, should I feel bad for Rod and Marilyn or not at all? I think so. Uh, and, and I didn't in the book, nor do I now, uh, lay the fault of all acts of abuse at the feet of both of these parents. Uh, the book recounts by having a conversation with an expert, an MPD, whom we were trying to see if we could cajole to be an expert in our case. And she blurted out that she believed another person, not one of the parents, was the, per was the perpetrator for many of the childhood acts of abuse that happened to Ross. Right. Uh, Dr. Cornelia Wilbur, who is the primary uh, shrink involved in the Sybil case, and she said, it's in your book, the grandmother did it. Correct. And so uh, when I had that conversation with Dr. Wilbur, and this was before our first competency trial, actually before our first sanity trial was to begin, we hadn't addressed the issue of competency at that time, uh, looking for an expert to testify in the insanity case. And that's when I called Dr. Wilbur. And when she blurted out her observation, I had to pick myself off of the floor. Uh, well, what did, so, you, what did you know about the grandmother? Well, uh, as, as the, the book recounts, uh, the history between the grandmother and her daughter, especially when the daughter became pregnant out of wedlock. And um, I'm hesitant to reveal a whole lot about it in the event 
readers of your or listeners of yours want to read the book and find out for themselves what it's all about. All right, I won't give away much more because people do need to buy this book just in the nick of time. It's a Colorado criminal justice story. Do you want to give away how it ends or keep the no. suspense going? No, I, I don't want to give away because that would ruin the book for the uh, for the reader. All right, well, then we won't. But we need to talk about Walter Garash. Now, there's a man who I met, but I didn't tangle with him much, and he didn't tangle with me. We had a healthy respect for each other. I wanted that United Bank murder case, but Norm Early gave it to Bill Buckley and Lamar Sims, and Walter and Scott Robinson won a great victory. Uh, That was on court TV. He defended Ron Lyle in a Jefferson County case where Ron Lyle shot to death a man, I think it was around Christmas time, uh, in his own home. And Walter Walter didn't acquit him. You know who acquitted him? My father-in-law was on that Jefferson County jury. Very impressed by Walter Garage. Talk about a small world, huh? Yeah, that, that's interesting. In fact, I had a... Uh... Walter had referred a uh, witness in that case to me, uh, and I represented that witness in that Ron Lyle trial. Uh, I remember vividly uh, aspects of the trial during which my client testified or was prohibited from testifying, and Walter emerging victorious in that case, which which occurred before the Carlson case, uh, the Walter and Scott's uh, incredible defense of John King in the uh, I think it was the United uh, Bank murder case, United, United Bank murder massacre, nineteen ninety one. Right, that occurred after the Carlson case mm-hmm. was over. Uh, Walter has a long, long history. Uh, of successes in both the criminal defense world and in the civil civil litigation world. And I was privileged to have him as my mentor for so many years. And he had such a positive impact on my career. That brings me to a beautiful line from your book. And I wrote it down because I like great wordsmithing and you did it in your book, David Savitz. And that is, I can picture Walter Grash, who's He's he's a bit older than you, right? Yes, Walter will be 95 uh, this year. Uh, I am 78, so he's 17 years my senior. Right, and he served in World War II, and then he had a career. He went to UCLA, became a lawyer, incredible lawyer, and one of your mentors. And if people want to learn more about Walter Garash, this is a great way to do it, buying David Savage's book just in the nick of time. But physically, even though he's not as tall, does, doesn't he look like Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm? <laughs> sort of have those qualities. Am I right? Well, you know, Walter is distinguished by a bulbous nose uh, and uh, his uh, three-quarter balding uh the minute of stature, uh, he was probably no taller than five, six, five, seven. Uh, but he was a giant, uh, both in the courtroom uh, and in terms of his compassion and empathy for people. 
right? But occasionally, even the greatest lawyers in the world find themselves in a small holding cell talking to a client, and you recount so many of those interactions with Ross Carlson. And Ross Carlson, with all his personalities, he could be a little exasperating. And at one point, he turned on Walter, and Walter said, I don't need to put up with this shit. And and then after he left, you, you had to work it out with Ross. And I love this line you wrote about, uh, quote, the slight sting of a mentor's mild rebuke. You were pissed at Ross Carlson for causing that. You, yeah. I love yeah. that slight sting of a mentor's mild rebuke because Walter got mad at you because Carlson got mad at him. And, and as the and as the reader will will find if they choose to read the book, it's during one of these hearings when a um, when a different personality emerges and uh, makes some comment uh, about Walter, uh, causing us to take a recess, and a confrontation exists. Uh, between the client and Walter, with me in the middle, and the uh, the reader will 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 find out about how these different personalities um, react to various environmental stresses, and and how different they are from the other personalities with whom we had to deal. And if listeners of yours are curious with respect to the dynamics of this uh, mental disease, then they'll find this particular episode and event that you and I are talking about now very telling and very interesting. It's creepy. And uh, Walter Garash, he's still with us. He had a dynamic career. I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about this crazy profession that we've all chosen what do you think about the practice of law? You're still doing it. Walter did it for a long time. What do you think of the legal system? Would you encourage people to become part of it? Yeah, like many of us who, who have done this work, including yourself, uh, for the many years that we do it, it's obviously a passion of ours. And it's a, it's a profession in which we dearly believe uh, in the rightness of it and the callings that it requires of us, particularly in the criminal defense arena. Uh, many lay people, and I'm sure you come across it yourself, Craig, uh, will say to you if you're doing criminal defense work after you after your successful years as a prosecutor, in your defense work, they'll say, how can you represent someone who did A, B, C, or D? And once you explain to them the basis, the constitutional basis of the representation and why every individual on our soil is entitled to the effective assistance of counsel as provided in the Constitution to give that person the most effective representation, it's only then that the layperson uh, lay person understands what we do and why we do it. It's not too dissimilar from a medical doctor uh, who is confronted with a gunshot wound patient uh, who is actually 
the perpetrator of heinous shootings himself, the doctor has to treat that patient. Uh, likewise, we, we lawyers who do criminal defense work have to defend the client who might be accused of some unsavory conduct. So I think it's a very noble calling that not many people in our profession are willing to undertake because of the stresses involved in it and the challenges involved in it. Similarly, in the civil arena, when we are representing someone who has been injured by the wrongful conduct of another, those injured people look to us to get them compensation that they're entitled to uh, as a result of what someone did uh, wrongly against them. So we serve uh, a number of different roles in society, in both the criminal defense realm and in the civil litigation realm. Very noble defense of our profession, although I just need to endorse what you said at the end. I like representing people who have been hurt through no fault of their own. And my particular practice, and I respect yours, people who are on alternative defense counsel, certainly the public defenders needed and necessary, but I'm a little bit more selective, and I probably would not have taken on the Carlson case where he did a great job. And, uh, you know, I may not be the right lawyer for a case David Savitz might be. I mean, there are different personality types, and maybe that explains why I was attracted to prosecution for 16 years, and you've done what you have accomplished in your remarkable career. So not every lawyer thinks alike, but there are stresses and anxieties and you either learn to live with it or get out. I don't know if you remember this part of Al Zinn and Allen Berg talking on that Harold Dubinsky tape about how some people can't last a year or two in this business. It will chew them up. It chewed up Allen Berg because I think he tried representing uh, some bad people in Chicago. And maybe there was a level of corruption there that he hated as well. But it got to him. A strong guy like Berg. Yeah, for sure. And that's why he resorted to uh, drinking uh, to, uh, to self-medicate uh, his, his displeasure with some of what he had to do, because he did do, uh, he did have cases involving racketeering and mobsters and what have you. Uh, he dealt with that, uh, with that. Uh, with that milieu. And it wasn't yeah. more pay to play, more corrupt in Chicago than Thank goodness sure. it's been in Colorado. Yeah. So, you know, a part of him, as I explained before, this concept of dissociation, where the individual sets aside the bad things that are happening in order to deal positively with the other things. Uh, that's what Alan had to do. And that's what many of us have to do when we represent uh, uh, people who are considered unsavory by others or who committed what others believe to be a horrific crime. And certainly the offense with which Ross was charged uh, cannot be described as anything other than horrific. Um, the notion of patricide, of killing Shot uh, both in one, the head. one's parents. Oh my God. And uh, you know, we try to describe in the book the reasons for it, and uh, readers will have to decide for themselves whether or not uh, the mental disease 
that we contended Ross suffered from was in fact what he did suffer from uh, and justified what he did. Well, you've been so great, and it's perfect for us to end talking about your friend, Alan Berg, and if only he would have been allowed to live. I, I just picture him as a person who made a lot of changes in his own life and was still going through more. He stopped drinking. That's why it would be surprising to me if he hung out with people who are out getting drunk all night. That would not be his best friend. I would see him as a friend of David Savage or Al Zinn or somebody like that. Uh, even more so, but I was not there. He also made changes in his style of hosting radio. He decided to be less outrageous, and that's a damn shame because he got killed for stuff he had said previously. He still should have never been killed. And would you agree with me on this, David Savitz? The reason Alan Berg got murdered is because he was Jewish. For sure. He was Jewish, and he was outspoken against white supremacists. Yes, but he, he was targeted for being a Jew, and I have to tell you, as a young deputy with no real power in that office when it occurred, I got some power later on, but it always rankled me that this guy Bruce Pierce and his uh, accomplices came to Denver and this multi-felon pulled out a huge weapon and gunned him down in the 1400 block of Adams and never stood trial for it in the city and county building, that still rankles me. Did it bother you? Well, yeah. Uh, you know, just to be convicted of a civil rights violation. Racketeering. Uh, and, yeah, and, and not murder. Uh, it's such an inequity in the law, but uh, there, there are those situations in the law uh, that that reflect what happened in that prosecution. Uh, I guess the, uh, the, one, uh, the one good outcome was the prison sentence that were meted out to these two guys and both of them dying in prison. Mm -hmm. So they got their just desserts. Although we had a death penalty. And uh, yeah, they died anyway. So I just get mad. That's that's me. And you dealt with me as a prosecutor. I feel so bad for what happened to Alan Berg. It was so unfair, so wrong. And I don't want anybody to steal his memory. I just remember him on the radio, and he, he would get me worked up, especially when he worked on Yom Kippur. I'm thinking, what kind of Jew are you? But what kind of <laughs> Jew am I to even question that? I'm not the greatest Jew, and nobody is that I know about. So he just stirs up these emotions, and I think it's important to remember who he really was and not just get one version of that from one person who might not be telling the whole story. Well, to those of us who knew him, uh, including, most importantly, Judith Berg, uh, you do a great service to his memory and to those of us who were close to him and remembering him by talking about him and talking about the positive aspects of his life, because there will come a time when there will be fewer and fewer of us left in this community who will have a memory of Alan Berg. So to your credit, uh, thank you for keeping his memory alive. Well, let's, let's give a shout out to Tom Overton, a past guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. He said, I think he's the one who said, did you know David Savage was a good friend of Allenberg? I think I have that right. And he said, 
Did you know he wrote a great book called Just in the Nick of Time about the Ross Carlson case? I didn't know any of that, but now I do, and now my audience does. David Savitz, I can't thank you enough. Uh, thank you, Craig, for having me. Thank you, Tom Overton, for introducing Craig and me into these topics of Alan and my book. I appreciate all of it. All right, man. Have a great New Year. Thanks again, David. Thank you. Likewise to you, Craig. Bye. Bye. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey, if you like this show, please shout it out on your Purple Apple podcast app. It would be so wonderful if you would scroll down, spot that place to leave a five-star review and your personal review. Kind words appreciated. Thanks so much. Tell your friends. Wow, thank you, David Savage. That was tremendous to talk to you in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. We learned a lot. I mean, the audience and me, I did not know that David Savitz actually represented Allenberg and got his confidential comments about his relationship with Peter Boyles. I wasn't there, but I'm starting to put the facts together now. Isn't that so? More to come. Catch up if you missed episode 70. That's when Stephen Singular was on talking about his book, Talk to death. He knew Allenberg. He is the biographer. Episode 70 goes with this episode, and it all fits together with you listening. Give a listen to Chuck Schumer as he talks about all the ways January 6th affected him, including as 
a prominent Jewish man. We're all in this together, America. I sure hope things work out. We have to talk about it. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show. I'm on the floor of the Senate at 1 p.m. Count the ballots. My first time as putative majority leader, haven't even given a speech about an hour later, police officer in a bulletproof vest, submachine gun strapped across his waist, grabs me by the collar like this. I'll never forget it. Senator, you're in danger. We've got to get out of here. I was within 20 feet of these insurrection, I'm not allowed to curse, but sons of guns, okay? Um, had one of them had a gun, had two of them blocked off the door. Who knows what happened? One of them was reputed to see me and say, there's the big Jew, let's get him. You know, bigotry against one is bigotry against all. I spent time on the phone trying to get the president, who wouldn't talk to me, but we did speak to the acting attorney general and to the secretary of defense to get Trump to call them to leave, which he didn't do at that time, he did it later. But we also resolved that we were going to come back that night and continue to count the ballots. We were not going to let these insurrectionists deter us from what our constitutional duty and job was. And we did. Finished about 3, 4 in the morning. Angry, angry people who want to do their, I have no doubt, having seen them, that their desire was to undo the government. I mean, I realized I wanted to call home, but we really couldn't. They didn't want communications. Um, just, I mean, it's amazing how Donald Trump resisted, resisted calling them back until 5.30, 6 o'clock when, when they were already leaving. I believe in this country. My father was an exterminator, didn't go to college. I'm majority leader. What a great country. But for the first time ever, and I'm a natural optimist, I'm worried about the future of our democracy. Something is out of whack in a way it has never been before. And it's the job of good citizens, Democrat, Republican, liberal, to, to rest, make sure that democracy stays strong. And right now you have a political party that's perpetrating this big lie that the election was stolen. And you know, when people don't believe in the validity of elections, that's the erosion of democracy in a very serious way.